One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth series of The Human Podcast, a place to hear extraordinary human stories that celebrate the limitless potential of human beings. So often, our personal stories of tragedy and survival are left untold, hidden behind the facade of our ordinary lives. Human has been created to make them more seen, more heard, and more celebrated. Because by doing so, I think we can all feel more connected to our shared humanity. So if the world is feeling like a dark or difficult place, join us and let your heart be ignited by the fire of the human spirit. Michael Matania is the founder of Tough Cookie, a mental health organisation created to help nurture human resilience. Michael, you have said... I work in resilience because I'm interested in how we cope with the inevitable tragedy of life, how we tend to the part of us that remains when the rest of us has been decimated. Michael came to this work following his recovery from psychosis in his late teens. And what follows, and what you're going to hear today, is probably one of the most moving personal stories of transformation and personal courage I've ever heard. So you are all truly in for a very, very special time with Michael today indeed. So Michael, before we start, I just wanted to thank you so much for being here, so much for making the time to be with us today. And before we get into it, I just wanted to see how how are you today, Michael? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I've got uh, some blokes next door who've decided to go to work with a circular saw <laughs> so if you've got that coming in and out then my apologies we're used um, to that we can deal with circular saws we're, we're used to that yeah <laughs> great yeah how am i i've been in a phase of trying to go to bed at 10 p.m to get up at 6 a.m and failing consistently every single day so i'm in a failure streak of uh getting up late for the past solid week and still going strong great uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's the sun's out. I'm really happy to be here. And thank you for that beautiful, beautiful introduction, Jess. Oh my goodness. So, so Michael, you are, I mean, so many things, but the thing that you have founded is this incredible organisation called Tough Cookie. And when we spoke, you described how, you know, Tough Cookie was really, you know, was was created as a result of your own personal recovery from psychosis in your late teens and I know there is a huge a huge story to tell there in and of itself and I was wondering if you you could just tell us a little bit a little bit more more about that cool so I would say that the the seed of tough cookie was planted well before I was born and very much has its roots in the life experience of my parents so my mum, her parents were Irish immigrants, came over to London, living in poverty in the 50s, very isolated, discriminated against. And they both died when my mum was very young. So her and her sisters were orphans and they had no support around them or holding to help them process that grief. And so in that typical Irish manner, uh, they clenched their fists, gritted their teeth, and got on with life. And all of that grief got pushed down. And 
my mum took that into her adult life and it showed up in a whole bundle of ways in her ability to form connections, in her ability to ask for help. And on my father's side, he was the son of a man who was schizophrenic, a very cruel man. He fed my father and his brothers chicken feed and my father was having to rob and steal in South East London to feed his brothers from a very young age. And so he grows up, he meets my mum and they have myself and my big brother Paul. And my father turns out to be a tyrant and my mum takes us away from him when I was two. And she went on to try and raise two little boys on a shoestring with no support around her mm. and she as as I would be in that situation was unable to cope mm. it was just too much mm. and she ended up having a nervous breakdown when I was five and she went away for a year and she in that moment my mum and I have uh, we had therapy together we went on a therapy journey last year and in the penultimate session of that journey together she admitted to me uh, in what was a one of the deepest acts of courage I've ever beheld in my life that for her in that moment the choice was either uh, in the despair that she was in it was either she smothered me or she went that was the binary choice so for her leaving in that moment was what courage looked like that was what how courage showed up in that moment for her and um, and so she she did go away and she managed to heal to the degree in which she was able to and she came back with this renewed sense of courage and strength and she was our primary caregiver for my whole life she worked her ass off to put a roof over our heads and food in our bellies but she still had so little support whether that's from friends or from the government that doesn't really honor and include the experience of single mums in policy she she was able to cater to our physical needs but she basically just had nothing left to tend to our emotional needs she was just so spent and so tired and so stressed and the first thing stress does is it shuts down your heart and it intervenes in your ability for contact yeah. And I use the word contact as distinct from connection. Mm. It's that state of deep presence where you're really dropped in together and you both feel truly seen by each other. And so like many emotionally neglected children, I had to turn to other means to get those needs met. And for me at the time of that age and what was available to me, it was sugar and bread. And flour and sugar have been the great love affair of my life. The great toxic relationship of my life and so I, I started eating for reasons other than hunger and started developing a charge around these foods and the control that I might be able to display in other areas of my life started to fall away around those foods and I basically used them to try and stay regulated to try and stay connected to soothe myself to numb myself in what was a a place where I couldn't find connection we were really struggling, all three of us. And so what happened was I started getting fat. And being a fat kid in a culture where we're not just trained by the media to fear fat, we're trained to find fat disgusting. And so being in a body that was considered disgusting or even that was just considered less valuable than slim bodies. Mm. That was a trauma in and of itself for me. Yeah. But also the common narrative was that my body was the way it was because of my own personal moral failure. And so that led me to internalize this story that I am a failure, which was compounded by the fact that I kept trying diets and losing loads of weight and then putting it all back on again. And that led to me to internalize this story of failure even more deeply. So I grew up on a place called the Progress Estate, 
The only thing the Progress Estate is famous for is it's the place where Stephen Lawrence was murdered, if you remember that famous police case. And it was a rough area, you know. First time I was held at knife point, I was 10 years old. And that was the beginning of my initiation into, into, into violence, into senseless violence. And so because of the shape of my body, it made me a target. And so I had to develop another set of coping mechanisms to deal with the ramifications of my first set of coping mechanisms. And so I basically tried to inhabit the role of a rude boy, bad man, put on the mask, entered into that culture and shut down. I really was just wearing a mask. Um, and we all we all have a persona and we all need a persona. It helps us mediate our relationship with with life. And there's always a dance between how much authenticity I bring versus how much persona in terms of what is appropriate. But I was all persona. Mm. I was so dislocated from my authentic thoughts and feelings at the time. And that combined with the drug use, I was smoking skunk every day, which is like a genetically modified cannabis. So I was getting more and more and more paranoid mm. over time, jealous, possessive, particularly over the females in my life. Mm. And that met the sort of unprocessed trauma. And I was basically just spiraling out of control. My mind was getting darker and darker and darker and darker until eventually the whole thing came to a head in an episode of psychosis. Mm. Uh, I was, I remember sitting in a room, I was living in Brighton and I just did something that I'd never done before, which is I, I called my mum and asked her for help. Mm and told her that I wasn't okay and I didn't know what was going on and she came and she collected me and with my brother they took me out to the countryside to this caravan and I was sitting in the caravan and they had gone to bed and I remember sitting there and there was this realization of shit I've lost my mind I cannot believe it I was living at that moment in a world of paranoid delusion the world was ruled by reptilian shapeshifters from the planet Nibiru. Um, and I was the only one who knew. And I had to get the word out. It was this real confusion and fear. And it was a real moment of uh, yeah, rec reckoning with years of unprocessed trauma, years of substance abuse and I didn't have the language of mental health back then mm. um, but I knew something was wrong and I can't you know in terms of like finding my way out of that space um, I was really determined to find my way out of that space like I remember that morning I, I sat awake during the night upright and then as the sun came up I took myself to a cliff and I remember sort of standing on this cliff and just coming to terms with what had happened to me. And that I it just kind of, I couldn't believe it. Mm. And just this feeling of deep fear and um, this feeling of despair. Mm. And my road out of psychosis was a long road. It was a road that would eventually bring me into contact with all different sorts of people, all who had a different piece of the puzzle for me, whether that was a therapist, a counsellor, um, mentors, authors. And during my recovery journey, I, I was able to, I suppose, build a, an understanding, a bit of a map as to what had happened in my family dynamics that lead to my psychosis. Mm. What had happened in my, uh, within my own mind and heart to lead to my psychosis and what had happened in my culture to lead to my psychosis. And that journey led me to eventually join the mental health charity Mind to share what I had learned in my journey. I joined in frontline services in South East London and was very sort of very lucky, right place, right time, right projects and went on to co-create the UK's biggest peer-led mental resilience project. So it was a, 
a project led by people with lived experience of recovering from mental illness rather than just academic qualifications. And I, and I journeyed in mind and um, went on to co-design their national mental health strategy for schools and became interested in adult mental health because obviously the mental health of parents has such a profound impact on the mental health of their children. Mm. It's deep how profound it is. And so how do you get parents along to the school? It's really hard. And it's like, well, where are all the parents? They're all at work. And so I became interested in working with organisations to be able to access parents. And um, so I joined a campaign called Time to Change and established this professional network for them, where it was all about finding people in organisations who have been touched by this story in some way and wanted to do something about it. And my role was to support them, resource them, convene them in gatherings and it was a beautiful time and tough cookie came to me i suppose i realized that i mean mind is what i would call a legacy organization most people know mind in the uk it's that logo that's the squiggle and then it comes out um it's a huge organization it's a real oil tanker you know and i was very much in this sort of speedboat energy and i've been learning all of these techniques mainly through the hippie communities and I don't mean the sort of old school hippie communities I mean more of this sort of avant-garde form of hippieism if we can call it that where it's more science-backed in terms of the the social and transformational technologies that they're engaging Um, and I've been sort of swimming in that water for a couple of years because that's where my journey had led me and tough cookie I suppose I created it to try and make some version of that that was accessible to mainstream audiences because when I first came across it I I felt quite alienated by a culture that I didn't I wasn't able to see myself in that culture Um, and so yeah Tough Cookie came to me um, well the long version is I as I as my journey at mine was coming to an end, I was working part time as a meditation teacher in two places. One was Facebook. Uh, I was their meditation teacher for three and a half years. And the other was a center for young men in gangs. And I was kind of cutting my teeth in those two domains of like, OK, how do I teach tech nerds and rude boys these skills and approaches that have served me so deeply? What's like an accessible, vibesy way that I can do this? And I ended up becoming interested in my roots, my history. And I was really interested in my estranged father. So I went about trying to track down my estranged father and I tracked him to an address in the south of Spain. An address I got from a long lost uncle who'd been living in Brazil. And for a whole bundle of reasons, I decided to walk to his house from my house in London. And I decided to walk, I suppose, for the same reason that you'd, you'd send someone a letter instead of a text. And I didn't have the language for it at the time, but there's also this piece around it being a, it was a self-created rite of passage. I wanted to do something hard as well. But again, I didn't have the language for what I was doing. I just had this pull of like, okay, I've got to do this thing. And so I told uh, two friends um, and one of them, Guy Harvey Jackson, she uh, really, she basically um, started a process of fundraising for me. She went and asked friends to donate me uh, money to buy my equipment. And she came to me and was like, look, your friends really want to support you, Michael. Like, can you just tell them what you're doing? And so I did. And I had about 60 friends rally around me and they bought all of my equipment, uh, bags, shoes. I, I mean, I was so naive. I was just going to bop basically from my front door and it was so touching and 
it became more real as to what I was doing. And it was quite a strange feeling to kind of walk out of my front door with my stick and my bag and start walking down the River Thames and make my way to Spain. And the most extraordinary thing about the experience for me was every time I'd walk into a pub or I'd meet someone on the road and they'd ask me, where are you going? Because, you know, you've got this big bag and and I'd tell them, like, I'm on my way to meet my estranged father. And it was fascinating because, like, 100% of the time people would drop in and they'd be so like whoa and half of the people would open up about their own father story mm. without me really asking it was like this permission slip and over the months that I was walking that was the deepest thing about it was to discover the, the near universality of the father wound mm. and how that how that shows up in our culture and the fact that you know, for me it's like the question started to change as I walked which was you know rather than what's wrong with my dad it's what must have happened mm. to this man mm. to make him completely unable to show up for his children mm. to make him go to the south of Spain and hide away and yeah I mean I I eventually made my way to his front door. I had the download for Tough Cookie halfway through this pilgrimage when I was crossing the Meseta, which is like a flat, featureless desert. But I suppose that's a story for a little bit later on. <laughs> but I showed up at his door and it was very surreal. It was very surreal. I was shitting my pants. Yeah. Uh, and he walked out of his house to meet me at the front because I wrote him a letter seven days before I got there to let him know that hello <laughs> I'm your son I'm on the way to meet you I'm coming to you in the spirit of mutual respect mm. and if it's meant to be healing mm. and it's my wish and hope that you meet me on that bridge I think was my exact language and you know when I did meet him it was like being in a psychedelic trip in the sense that it was very ordinary and yet profound at the same time because I had this sequence of experiences that were so new, like hugging my father for the first time, having my father hand me a cup of tea for the first time, mm. hearing him laugh for the first time, watching mm. him chew chicken for the first time. Mm. And all of these moments were just these quiet, sort of profound moments. Mm. Um, and, you know, I want to say that it was a happy ever after experience, you know, but he had spent his life isolating himself and he, unlike me, had not been privileged to gain access to these healing modalities that I had and support and access to wisdom that had led me to be able to heal my own disconnect. And so he wasn't able to meet me emotionally in that at all. Like for me, I just walked a thousand miles to turn up at his front door and it was one of the most personally meaningful experiences of my life. But for him, it was Tuesday and he wasn't able to meet me in what was happening. Mm. And it took me years to grieve that, actually, to grieve the fact that it wasn't, it wasn't that we, things hadn't worked out, it's that he didn't care that I was there. Mm. or he maybe he did in some very deep way in a, in a very deeply buried part of him I'm sure really did care but I think I was somewhat naive and romantic in a way of what I might be able to get from that but mm. for me you know, it's almost a tired cliche it's about the journey there was this there was this deeper peace you know after I said goodbye to my father um, after a, I'd, I'd stayed there for a a night and a day I said goodbye to him on the beach in Malaga and we went our separate ways and I kind of sat down on the beach and uh, had my sort of self-indulgent melancholic moment of watching the sunset um, and 
then I opened the letter from a, a mate of mine that I hadn't read, and there was a paragraph in there which was, uh, "Good luck, buddy. I don't have any advice for you. You certainly don't need any, but maybe just one small thing. Whatever happens with your pups, wherever you meet, however it lands, your journey will remain untouched, unwaveringly infinite. Its meaning and purpose, cosmic." And firstly, when I read that, I was like, bars. Um, the guy has got a really beautiful way of writing. and But also, there's a reason I memorized that paragraph. Because for me, that was the moment that I just broke down. And I was able to grieve. It was my first inroad to grief. And grief is something that I've, I'm still taking baby steps into. You know, learning, relearning how to cry as a man. Mm-hmm. And that was a, my entry point. And I believe that is ultimately, in, in some way, the gift of my father is that was my doorway into grief mm. and to start journeying with that. And, and I suppose I'm blessed that I get to channel the helplessness that I feel in that dynamic, in the tragedy that we're not going to have a happy ever after. And I get to channel that into equipping people, men included, with the tools they need to heal because we've inherited a situation where we're all carrying trauma you know we don't know what happens i mean think of the two great wars those alone you think about the trauma that men carry from those battlefields and then even going back i think about the trauma that i've got from having my teeth punched out you know let alone the trauma of machine gunning people and being bayoneted and whatever it is you know the carnage of violence Mm. and the fact that we don't have communities of care to hold that and heal that as a culture we have a culture that fails to initiate men and and we all reap the tragic consequences of that But it taught me a lot about my mum as well. The way that my mum, in that sort of unglamorous, gritty, just uncelebrated way, showing up day in, day out, imperfectly, but day in, day out. And I got a a sense of, I went to a cathedral um, in Malaga, and it was a cathedral to the Mary Magdalene. And I was sitting there looking at this statue of this woman and really just connecting to the, the sacrifice that the mother has to make, like the staggering magnitude of the sacrifice that mothers have to make. And yeah, for me, it was also a deep, the beginning of the healing journey with my mum that culminated in that therapy session, you know, mm-hmm. um, that therapy journey we went on together. So... There was some outworking there. I thought it would be about healing with my father, but it actually turned into healing with my mum and my brother. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, you said something to me when we, we spoke many months ago when we first started talking about you coming on the podcast that just really stayed with me. And you said that, you know, when it comes to resilience, you said there is the part in all of us that remains when the rest of us has been decimated. That tiny ember that we can blow until we have a fire. And I think when it comes to this thing of resilience, it is that part of us that somehow remains intact, as you say, when everything else has been burnt away And so often, and but the thing is, as you know, Michael, so well, not everybody has that internal 
sense of resilience. You know, resilience is not something that everybody is able to access. And I do think there is something about people's, even if, as you say, if they've been imperfect and difficult and painful, having had that experience of love, feeling loved, even if it was complicated and painful and messy and difficult can be the thing that creates that that ember that can't that will, will always stay aglow somewhere somewhere deep inside you even when everything else is burnt and it just sorry I don't know if I'm going to be able to say this without choking up but that is to me what your mother's love in those very early days even those very very early complicated difficult painful days possibly provided um kind of put that back to you and see if there's that feels true if i hadn't received any love i would be very very fucked up and my mum she was able to impart on me some very profound gifts. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the first instance, being a single mum who didn't want to pay childcare, she would take us to all the salsa clubs, and so me and Paul learned how to salsa dance. And that's been one of the greatest gifts for me is actually being able to <laughs> dance with a woman rather than just like coming up on her and trying to grind, you know, you're right, girl. Um, but yeah, I, I still remember even though my mum might not have been able to access her softness and her heart uh, in the way that she would have liked to and as frequently she would have liked to, um, she still gave me these pieces. I remember when I got expelled from, uh, I went to this sixth form and I was the first kid from my school to go to this sixth form. It was a grammar sixth form. And uh, I got kicked out in the first two weeks for insolence, quote unquote. And uh, I remember my mum, she was so used to fighting the local authorities <laughs> that she was not going to take that lying down. And she fought to get me reinstated. And she drove me, I remember her driving me to that sixth form when I basically, I, I was I was kicked out for was it, inciting, basically inciting some form of like a... I think they might have even tried to use the word riot. But anyway, my mum like looked at me in the car and she said to me, like, Michael, you walk back in that school with your head held high. And that stayed with me, that head held high piece. Mm-hmm. She has this grit. She has this extraordinary capacity to endure. And that's something we all have. That is such a deep human quality is endurance. That's Araya Mountain Dreamer, that poet who wrote the invitation poem that did the rounds a few years ago. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. And that for me speaks to what endurance is. And there are times when we simply must endure. And that's what she taught me. But endurance is not resilience. Mm. Endurance is that capacity to grit teeth, clench fists and push on. Mm. But resilience is, is, is something different. And I think a lot of what my life has been about is learning the difference between those two things and coming into relationship with what human resilience actually could look and feel like. Mm. And... For me, if endurance is clenching tits, cl- cl- I always say clenching tits, clenching <laughs> fists. <laughs> um, Give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> <all right. laughs> um, so <laughs> it's it's you know for me resilience is this um, it's this ability to draw on best practice in coping it's not just gritting teeth clenching fists pushing on based on whatever default coping mechanism has got you that far in the first place 
maybe it's booze or carbs, maybe it's screens, maybe it's burying yourself in work, whatever way we use to keep ourselves regulated in in these times and you know we all have to develop these because for a lot of us we're growing up in a desert of connection mm. you know? my mum grew up in a, a like a like a barren glacier when it came to connection and the, mm. when i did therapy with her and i heard about her life and the life of the generation before us where there was no brene brown back then talking about vulnerability mm. it was like oh you know, my, one of my best friends, Ronan, when his brother was knocked down and killed outside of his house, and his father carried him in, carried his bloody, bloodied body in, and two days later had gone back to work. You know, and it's like the the this 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 culture of silence and this culture of cracking on is what is dominant. Mm. and it's played a part you know it's really has played a role i'm not going to pathologize it but i do think we need to move beyond now beyond endurance culture and towards a culture that really champions resilience which is okay i'm really going through it right now i need to be intentional and deliberate around what i'm leaning on to support myself and whether that is best practice in uh, regulating my emotions, in regulating my stress, in regulating my thoughts, whether that's intentionally cultivating those relationships that are going to nourish my soul through this period, mm-hmm. you know, my four o'clock in the morning people. Um, there's all of these different pieces that that I and myself, will, we're so conditioned, aren't we, to uh, for endurance that... Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe life is a dance between endurance and resilience. You know, I'm, I run a mental resilience training company and I will find myself on the living room floor from time to time with a fag and a Bailey's, like, what is my life? Like, that is just a normal part of being human, you know? And But I do think as a culture, we, we're not having a conversation around, all right, well, what does best practice in processing your emotions look like? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to to feel your emotions, to process them and to clear clear them when necessary as well as you move through life rather than squashing them down, letting them accumulate in your system until mm-hmm. it passes a tipping point where you, it starts showing up in maladaptive behaviour, which for most people, most of the time, on average, is about four major life adversities is the yep. amount of adversity that you can bury. That's That yep. was a longitudinal <laughs> study of two and a half thousand people. So it's about four major adversities of, of before, yeah, before it starts showing up in unhealthy ways. I mean, what you're describing, Michael, you, you, you put this so beautifully, I think this is on your website, you say resilience is not about feeling better, but being better at feeling. <laughs> it's extraordinary the lengths to which I will go to avoid feeling my feelings. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, you know, whether it's never slowing down, Mm. Right. I've built I've basically in many ways built a career out of avoiding feeling feelings you know a lot of the time because it's 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 what's part of what's driving this always on busy culture mm. obviously there are there are cultural incentives to never slowing down and there is the way in which the colonial mindset drives that in the way that it devalues certain certain ways of being like pottering for example and railroads it with productivity mindset where every inch of our lives has to be turned into something productive um, in order to be worthy but in a in another way there is this piece around well god if i slow down what happens what happens if i stop what happens if you stop is that you have to feel Mm. and a lot of people don't have the conditions of safety in order to do that work and to feel those feelings. You know, we say in Tough Cookie, not feeling unsafe is not the same as feeling safe. Mm. And so a lot of us, we might be in friendship groups or in organisations where we don't feel unsafe, 
but we certainly don't feel safe enough to actually allow the true expression of what's going on for us mm. to arise and i'm not saying that you know there's also appropriateness with all of this it's not always not always appropriate to go into your rage or your grief or whatever it is um but we don't create enough spaces to hold people who want to slow down and feel who want to go there we are cultured away from our feelings and it's scary because feelings are myopic and messy and it's so much easier to stay in the comfort zone of our mind and the ideas space where we can find certainty the mind craves certainty and so uncertainty is something that would avoid at all costs and most of us when we start feeling particularly when you've spent your whole life not feeling 10 percent of the population are alexithymic which means they are unable to identify their emotional state at all even if given the space to do that and so there's a spectrum of people not all people will be alexithymic but numbness is uh, a way of life I started feeling my emotions when I was in my mid-twenties and even then learning to feel the physical sensations of my emotions that was one thing but then being able to put language to them that was a whole other piece you know I'd go through a breakup with someone and add my best mate at the time Nina and she would have to kind of narrate to me what I might be feeling and I'd be like yeah yeah I think that sounds right whereas when she has an emotion there's a flitter of sensations across her heart and she's like okay yeah that's a bit of bitterness resentment um jealousy you know and you can just read it and map it you know and then express michael yeah what does courage feel like that's such a deep question jess (laughs) in my body courage feels like strengthening in my arms and my legs it feels like a an evanescent feeling in my heart and in behavior courage looks like turning towards inconvenience it, it looks like bringing the icky piece of feedback to your partner even when you really don't want to name it but deep down you know it's registering in the field between you whether it's named or not courage looks like inviting feedback from the world and listening hard courage looks like getting up and having a cold shower when you've got depression Mm. or when your mind is telling you a story that no one can help you, asking for help nonetheless Mm. in the presence of that story. Asking for help and humility is one of the deepest forms of human courage and expression of it. Like, I spend a lot of time on stages and on I have a platform I'm very blessed in that way to share my thinking and many people aren't given a platform and it's been really wonderful to get to explore and inhabit my bigness in that sense and for me when I look at that and I compare it to an experience I had at the beginning of this year when I went to an Overeaters Anonymous group where I was sitting in a dark community cafe with five uh, middle-aged, overweight women and saying the words, hello, my name is Michael and I'm a compulsive overeater. That, for me, felt like one of the most courageous experiences of my life because I've been putting off uh, turning towards that as an addiction, my the way in which I still use food as a sedative that was deeply humbling experience and really showed me what what sometimes courage is making yourself really small mm-hmm. and sometimes it's actually eating the humble pie mm-hmm. 
in a, in a deep way. It felt courage is what we need for the journey towards wholeness. Mm. And when I started working a 12-step program, I look around me in that community cafe and in the eyes of everyone is the deepest courage. And what's interesting is that in that space, it's our weakness, not our strength, that binds us together. Mm. And particularly in an age where the countercultural scene that I move in, where unrooted, free-floating, self-actualization culture is dominant. Mm. How much healing can I do? How much can I shine? Uh, how much can I actualize? Mm. How amazing can my career be? How special can I be? Um, I actually feel like, um, for me, there's a real piece in there around um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think the I'm I'm having a really deep journey in the twelve step program at the moment, and there's something in there. There's something about smallness and humility and weakness that feels really bound up with courage. Mm. Um, a deeper form of courage than just shining. Mm. It's like turning towards the the unglamorous, uh, the sober. You know, sobriety I love that word that's what courage looks like for me a lot of the time it's just a, it's like having a real sober look at something and, and, and meeting it if there's one person in your life that you'd want to be proud of you who would that be me <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> <Because> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's part of the, you know, so many of us grew up without hearing those words. Mm. Now, the first time I felt the hand of an older man put his hand on my back in encouragement, uh, I was 27. And I feel like so many of us, don't get to hear those words enough when we're growing up and we don't get to internalize that voice that tells ourselves i'm really fucking proud of you well fucking done dude that befriending voice and certainly for me coming into relationship with this healthy form of pride in oneself um that's a deep one because so many of us were never given that voice we haven't carried it within us. And it's part of what's driving burnout culture mm. is because we don't know how to celebrate ourselves and stop and be like, I just did a great thing. I'm just going to celebrate and bathe in that. Instead, it's like feeding a hungry ghost. It's all wretch and no vomit. And learning how to be proud of ourselves enables us to actually inherit and enjoy the fruits of our labor. And when you figure out how to do that, Jess, if you have figured out how to do that, please let me know. Because <laughs> something I'm still figuring out, but it's something I really need to learn is how to be proud of myself. So, Michael, in true human form, we ask all our guests to, de to dedicate a song to this episode. So if there was one song you would like to dedicate to this conversation with us today and to play us out, what would that be and why? Well, interestingly, the first song that came was Ocean by John Butler. When I was learning, relearning how to cry in my sort of mid to late 20s, this particular song, Ocean, was somehow a gateway for me. I found that if I, I remember breaking up with a girlfriend and sticking on this tune and going for a cycle because I and just weeping the whole way through it and it's it's very it's become a song that from that moment has really signified and there's something about breakups that I think really bring one close to one's humanity it's a very sacred place to be I feel very 
it brings me close to whatever this we when we use the word sacred wherever we're pointing at when we use that word and for everyone that will be slightly different but mm -hmm. for, but whatever we're pointing at by that word it brings me close to that and uh this song i've found to be something that has helped me come alongside um my own humanness in some of those more kind of tender um I suppose for me, it's like if I could get if I broke up with someone, if I could get away with listening to Jagged Little Pill album in my bedroom, then I probably still would. But in the absence of that, I'd listen to John Butler Ocean. It's an <laughs> absolute banger. Michael, just thank you so much for being here with us today. It it takes so much to be able to speak with the candor and honesty and bravery that you have today I mean not just today but the way you do in your whole life and so I really mean it when I say it's a it's a privilege for myself and our listeners to to have access to these types of conversations um and so just yeah thank you for all you are for all you do and for joining us on this series so here we have it Ocean by John Butler Thank you, Jess. you all so much for listening if you'd like to rate review and subscribe to us on your podcast app then please do and you know the score five stars please if you'd like to come and say hello on instagram then you can find me and all things human podcast related at this is jess mills this podcast was created and hosted by me jess mills with creative co-production by bonnie tyburn and produced by joel porter at dot dot dot